This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 27. And the quote of the day is from Barbara Cochran, who said, You cannot fake passion. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini, and we're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And I want to thank everybody for the ratings and reviews that you've been leaving on iTunes. I truly do appreciate it. And wherever you're listening to this, just snap a picture of where you are and tag us on Instagram at Drummer's Resource. And I love seeing where everybody is when they're listening to this podcast. So it'd be kind of cool. Just tag us on Instagram and uh, and I'll take a look at those pictures because I definitely want to see them. Got a great show for you today. Got the one and only Harold Jones, who is a Hall of Fame drummer and just all around amazing person. Just one of the nicest people you would ever want to meet. And Harold has a resume that reads like a who's who in the music business. Uh, He recorded 15 records with the Count Basie Orchestra. In addition to that, he's played with Oscar Peterson, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald. He's played with uh, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Herbie Hancock, B.B. King, John Lee Hooker, Ray Charles, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's just amazing the people that he's played with. He's played at the White House five times, uh, you know, which is just another amazing feat. And he has achieved so much in his career and you would never know by talking to him because he is the most humble and most genuine person that you would ever want to meet. And it is just an absolute honor and a pleasure to have Harold on the show. So we're not going to waste any more time. We're going to get right into this interview with the legend himself, Mr. Harold Jones. Harold, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I really do appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. Well, thank you very much, Nick. All right, my pleasure. Yeah. So... I always, uh, I like I said, I always like to to find out where people got started playing drums, how they got into it, and and where they kind of got the bug to start to start playing and start falling in love with the drums. And I know that you were that you grew up in uh, Richmond, Indiana, but how did you how did you start playing and how did you get into it? Well, one summer in my hometown, they were running a music. They started a music program, and kids could go to summer school five days a week, Monday through Friday. I want to say it was 14 weeks, and it was for $14. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, but that was a lot of money back then. Sure. <laughs> so what year, mom, are we talk- what year are we talking? We're, we're talking about 1954. 1954. Yeah. And my mom said, uh, my brother and I, she says, uh, well, this is such a good deal. I want you boys to play an instrument, and I won't. I don't care what instruments you play. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, just go in, and when Monday comes, we're going to go in and sign you up. And I said, okay. So we. Uh, I couldn't go up to my Sandlot baseball game, and I where I was vying to be a pitcher or second baseman like Jackie Robinson. Right. So so that kind of irritated me as a young kid. But I I said, okay, I'll go ahead and pick out an instrument. The guy put the paper down in front of us, and uh, you're supposed to check off the instrument that you wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And I, the one guy I knew about, I knew was Miles Davis. So I thought to myself, what trumpet, man? I mean, that's where all the girls are looking at the trumpet player. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, now I don't want to say I was dumb, but being in Indiana, 
I didn't exactly know how to spell tuba. I mean, trumpet. Right. So I checked off. Oh, I knew it started with a T, and I checked off the smallest word with a T. And the next day, when the guy came in with the instruments, and he put that tuba around me, and that's what I said. I, I, I've got to learn to spell. By the way, I really wanted to play the drums, <laughs> and that was that was how I got into drums. Really? Just yeah, just because I couldn't spell trumpet exactly right, and I just knew it was a small instrument, so I just checked off the T, but it was a tuba. <laughs> And that was back when they were huge, big round ones, you right, know. Right, right. And I was 14 years old. No, no. And uh, it's just been, and so consequently, I didn't have a drum because I hadn't checked out drums. Right. So when, so when we started the music class on Tuesday, all I had was a music book and a practice pad. Hmm. And it took them about another week to get another drum. And by then, man, I was already learning how to read and playing on a practice pad. So I started out the real correct way. Right. So I, I've always been always been able to read, and uh, I it just got me in leaps and bounds to get the jobs. I mean, I, I've been to band rehearsals where they already had the drummer there, with that was with their band, but because he couldn't read, they'd have me play it and do the rehearsal. Really. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, I think that originally when I got called to do Basie's gig, I was in Chicago working everywhere, Playboy Club, uh, uh, the TV shows. Uh, I was doing all kind of gigs in Chicago. And uh, I got called to go to New York to play with Basie's band because he was going to be there at the Rainbow Room in Empire State, Billy. Uh, the week before New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. and basically always did that. And uh, the the drummer at that time was Rufus Jones, okay. who had, and he had taken off from Basie for a while, and then he got called to go with Duke. Now he was out of town when this job came up. So so anyhow, they called me, and I flew to New York, and uh, joined Basie then. It was supposed to be for two weeks. And I was there for five years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, consequently, uh, that was how I really just kept going in leaps and bounds. And, man, after once you went basic, then the singers started coming around. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I mean, I got to record with people like uh, Judy Garland, Bing Crosby, K-Star, and then uh, Tony Bennett came around, came through. And uh, I was living in New York. I moved to New York from Chicago. And uh, uh, when Basie wasn't working, I'd do a weekend with Tony Bennett, like at the Diplomat Hotel down in Miami or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you still play with Tony, don't you? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to say. So this was 68, and I, first, I lived around the corner from Tony. And I just got back with Tony in about 2001, 2002. Oh, okay. So, so it's been I've been back this time about ten years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but back then, I mean, wow! I did the singers, and because of because of Basie, I got to go with uh, Sammy Davis, and I went with Ella, mm-hmm. and uh, 
Nancy Wilson, Carmen McRae, and uh, did you tour with Frank Sinatra too? No, no. never did. No, did you play with him before though? Right? No, I played private parties at his house. Ah, and uh, oh, we used to have a ball. It was Jilly's nephew, uh, tenor player. Uh, I actually, I, I actually uh, live on the same street that uh, that Frank Sinatra grew up on. In what city are you speaking of? Hoboken. Wow. Yeah. yeah a lot of famous people come from New Jersey, man. Yeah, I know. I know. John Basie, Sarah Vaughn. Man. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when Sarah died, they had the six white horses pulling her cart down the street. You know. Mm-hmm. They did one of those kind of funerals. Right. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, rewind. I wanted to rewind back a little bit um, when you were talking about when you were younger and you and you were uh, in this music school and you were and you were learning, like you said, the proper way. And what do you think of the way? Do you think that it's different now that the way that people are learning how to play drums? Because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you were younger, the the large emphasis was on was on playing correctly, learning your rudiments, learning how to read before you ever really graduated, so to speak, to a, a full kit. Absolutely, yes. And I forgot to mention that my that first, uh, the summer school teacher, I can't remember his name, and he was only there those few weeks, but then I, my first real teacher was Jack Kurkowski, and he had the Jack Kurkowski xylophone band that did vaudeville shows around the country. And he had he had me playing on a drum set when I first started. The bass drum was almost, well, it was like a 30-inch bass drum. And uh, I used to play stick beats on the bass drum. You'd hit the bass drum with your stick, actually. Yeah. There were stick beats on the bass drum. Then I had the wood block cowbell on the bass drum. I had the tempo blocks beside me. I had the wind chimes on the other side. I literally learned how to play properly right. and reading and reading all, all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like some of that is, is lost now? Absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. I think that that kind of learning how to play as a drummer, to me, made it opened my vision and my scope up of playing and thinking and listening. Mm -hmm. It actually did. I hear drummers now, they have, it seems like tunnel vision the way they play. Right. One 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 volume level, one speed. <laughs> right. Very blocky and one dimensional, so to speak. Yes. Yes. Now I know that I remember reading a, a quote from you somewhere that said that that you teach people how to interpret music on the drums. And I you know, it's it's hard it's kind of hard to to uh to really put your hand on it because drums are not a melodic instrument. And, right. and, you know, there's no there's no proper scales to learn or anything. But how would you suggest that people play melodically and play musically on the drums? Because I, I feel like it's a really hard concept to grasp. Yes, you're right. And, and back then, back then meaning like in the 50s, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have all the technology that the kids have today. And consequently, we, we had every record of anybody that came out. I mean, from... Uh, um, uh, I don't know. We did the Basie, the Lena Horns, the 
the Benny Goodmans, anybody that had a record out back then. And, and of course, with me, it was always like Max Roach, Art Blakey, Elvin Jones. I was in that little jazz niche. Right. Because of a couple of cats from Richmond, Indiana, mainly a drummer named Joe Hunt. He got me into uh, listening to the real cats. Joe was about five years older than me, mm-hmm. uh, if that. But it, maybe it was two, but it seemed like five right. <laughs> when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was one of the first cats, man, I ever saw wearing sunglasses at night, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is a white guy, too. I don't know <laughs> if you ever heard of him. Joe Hunt, Joe fantastic. Hunt. He was with Gary Burton, Stan Getz. And Joe, he taught him. Joe Hunt, H U N T? H U N T. And and he he was teaching up at Berkeley. I don't know if he retired or went on back into playing or how he went, but he's not at Berkeley now. But he was there like twenty, thirty years. In in outside of Boston, or in Boston. Yeah, I'm definitely. I'm gonna look him up. Yeah, man, and a great player. And then the, there was another little alto player, white guy in Richmond, that said he was an alto sax player, and he said, "Man, you have to listen to Charlie Parker. This is this is the man." And I mean, man, I grew up so fast because they're good guys, good teachers, people that were listening to good music. Right. And so, uh, consequently, when I uh, turned 18, um, I, I had won. I won a full scholarship to the American Conservatory of Music in Chicago. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering how you how you made the the transition to Chicago. That was it. And my band director, his name was Robert Carr. Carr. C A R R. This band director knew that if I was going to grow, I had to go to a city <laughs> like Chicago. Right. Sure. Yeah, and he got me this scholarship audition, and I got went up and passed it, and, and it was under James Dutton, D-U-T-T-O-N. And um, and there again, now James Dutton, was he was a mallet player, and the drum set was considered like a bastard instrument. Right. It wasn't It wasn't a legitimate instrument in a music school. So uh, I, I ended up learning how to play triangle for a year from the from the percussionists in the Chicago Symphony. Mm-hmm. Played tambourine for a year with one of them, and then when my teacher there was conducting the Chicago Symphony summer concerts, which is like the pop orchestra, mm-hmm. he used us guys uh, in his in his percussion department. We got to be the percussionists in the Chicago Symphony. Awesome. So it was it was all great to me. It was I mean, I was learning in leaps and bounds like that. Right. And then be, being in Chicago, man, you know it was wall to wall nightclubs back then. Mm-hmm. And I worked everything from the blues at night with Roosevelt Sykes, the original honey dripper, right on up to the jam sessions that Joe Siegel would have. And I mean it was like the tenor players would be like Sonny Stitt, Johnny Griffin. And, and I mean, one song would be an hour, an hour and a half. <laughs> I'd be on the bandstand playing, man, and a cat would come up to me on the side, on the side, and he said, man, I heard you cats play it on the radio, man. It sounded so good. I had to get dressed and come down here and get a piece of it. Nice. <laughs> Needless to say, I got a bad bladder today. <laughs> yeah, and I made the rule: you got to be in the room when the song starts. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah, man, it was it was it was fun when you're young. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, and 
I mean, I was there with all the tenor players, Gene Hammonds and those cats. So, uh, and then I played with several of the big big bands around there. Mm-hmm. Chicago. There was a Morris Ellis. There was a Freddie Wacker. There's a Wacker Drive in Chicago. But Freddie Wacker was one of the family members, and he had a big band. I don't know. I heard over the years that because he had, he went into the music and he liked to race race cars, his family disinherited him. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, though, but <laughs> they weren't sure he was all here. <laughs> he, he wanted to play music and race race cars. So anyway, uh, well, I got a lot of experience like that. Right. And then uh, because uh, I was in that at the original Playboy Club, and they had three shows, three bands on three different floors. Hmm. and uh, uh, But every band had two nights off. So my band, we went in every, we were the sub band. We did, did two nights in one room, two nights in another room, two nights in another room. Now we were reading on all these shows. Girl singer, boy singer, and comedian. Wow. It's and so it amazing was, because that would never, that would never be going down nowadays. Right. You know. You're, you're right. Well, I mean, the Playboy Club sent, give a lot of people work and, and, and basic training. Mm-hmm. And all those comedians like Flip Wilson and all of them came through there. Oh, really? Yeah, Charlie yeah. Callis. Uh, I, Jackie Gale never got famous. But then I worked with comedians there in Chicago. I mean, Red Fox was one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. I, love, I always love the Red Fox quote where he says, there's too many different religions. So, it, uh, what he said, he said, there's too many different religions. Uh, it's it's going to be crowded. If you don't have a reservation, you're going to have to stand up. <laughs> or he said, he said, there's too many different religions, so somebody's going to hell. And if you don't, ha- it's going to be crowded. If you don't have no reservations, you're going to have to stand up. <laughs> I'll tell you, man. Red, red and those cats, man, were really funny, man. <laughs> I know. We used to go to work every night and laugh because this cat was funny, man. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now yeah. you would, you would mention that uh you know when you were when you were in college that the drums were more of a bastard instrument because you know as we know the evolution of the drum set has come over years but as we know it has only been around for you know what you know 100 years or so and i feel like there's not a systematic way of of teaching melody on the drums. Um, and that's what, you know, like we were talking about before, you were learning all that melody and, and stuff, learning or hearing all these good tunes and, and playing all the time and people kind of showing you the ropes. How would you suggest that younger kids that are coming up now that want to play melodically and want to play like that, how would you suggest that they practice that? Well, uh, for me, I, I we used to listen to everybody. Now, to me, when I listen to what, what they call a new music, everybody, it all starts to sound the same. Right. So, so uh, I recommend. I don't know. They got to find a a good teacher in a in a in a probably a bigger city. It's just obvious. It goes hand in hand. Right. And and or one of the music camps. One of the music camps because. There's a music camp I've been going to since that teacher started in Upper Wisconsin. It's called Birch Creek, and it's across the lake, Lake Michigan, from uh, what was that, Tanglewood, in Michigan. Anyway, those kind of music camps I've noticed really opens kids' eyes and ears to a, a broader scope of music. 
because you can hear hear all these other kids. So the music camps like that, and if they can find a better school like UCLA, man, now it has uh, uh, Kenny Burrell down there head yeah. of the music department. So I mean, someplace like that, uh, I I would suggest. It, it now it's gotten to be that you almost got to know the teacher. Right. Uh, yeah. So if you if you have a good teacher, can do it. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. It's uh, so I, I I would just recommend they look around for the resources where there's a good school where the, they would know the names of the teachers or know the teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that playing that people's playings for the most part um, has declined over the years? The people that are coming up now. Well, I want to say yes, but I got to go back on that because for a minute, because I remember when Billy Cobham came along, and before him, I didn't ever hear of a drummer jogging on the beach or lifting weights or doing anything. Right. And then, and and then uh, uh, there were other drummers that were playing with a technique like I like the Steve Smith. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, I've heard him play so many time signatures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That uh, they go, they go into the deep deepness of it, and I I, I love that, I love that, uh, I but a lot of kids do not have a full scope. I mean, I was down teaching at uh, the University of Illinois. This is what ten years ago now, and uh, if I had ten drummers in the class, eight of them didn't have brushes. Right. And so I sent them all out to get some. The music store in town only had four pair of brushes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, it's always been. It's, it's, I'm seeing a slack off of things like that right. happening. That uh, and the kids don't have that many songs they ever use brushes on anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or much less mallets. You right. know. Right. And I mean, like when I'm playing with Tony, I have a pair of brushes, a pair of mallets, a pair of sticks out at almost all times. Right. So uh, uh, just for colors and, sure. and for colors and sounds. Yeah. And now I don't hear, I don't see kids doing anything like that. Right. They just got a one nice big pair of logs and uh, and hit it. Right. <laughs> and like, yeah. like you said, you know, one volume, one speed and, and, uh, yeah. and yeah. that's it. What's your yeah. what's your opinion of the of the the music scene now? Well, man, I'm sorry to say, uh, I think I'm hearing less music and more smoke and mirrors. I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. I was uh, I was speaking with with JoJo Mayer yesterday, and you know he said that before people would people if they found out somebody was lip syncing the song, you know it was it was mm. people were up in arms about it and now it's not even a secret anymore no you know that's just no they just say well that's what we do you know and yeah I, it's gone from maybe musicians yeah. to entertainers yes you know and now it's an entertainment yeah. business rather than musicians playing yeah. going from musicianship to entertainment yep yeah which is sad yeah it is it is a little sad to me i'm saying i'm glad i came along when i did right uh yeah because I get scared what, about what's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. Well, me too. And that's why I keep looking down at my grandchildren who are like, you know, five years old now and trying to listen to what, what they like. Right. I've only had one grandchild that ever heard classical music, and that was because his mom drug him along 
to sister's ballet class. Really? And that was that was the music he heard. Right. You know, and he, that, so I'm thinking we got to get to them when they're five. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if we can, yeah. Because I mean, after that, they've been indoctrinated by every radio channel, every everything. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how the you know the evolution of things go because you know jazz was was revolutionary and uh, and and kind of this this rogue uh, you know way of expression or way of expressing yourself and then rock and roll was the same thing and now you know it feels like jazz is more for is more conservative and for conservative people and and uh, you know rock and roll is more is more you know pop and and uh, yep, you know, yep. bubblegum, so, so to speak. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. We have to thank heaven for people like like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. That, that kept it going traditionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, so, man. who were some of your uh, who were some of the favorite people that you played with? Would you would, if you had to if you had to pinpoint a few artists that were that were your crowning achievement? Who would you say that would be? Man, I gotta say, man, I've had a whole lot of them. Yeah, I mean, really, because once you're with Basie, and if you get to play with, and the singers are like Ben Crosby or Judy Garland, I mean, you can't say anything negative. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I've been a very lucky guy. I mean, I went with Ella Fitzgerald, who I never heard a bad note ever. Right. I I went with Sarah Vaughn, where I had to keep my eyes open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now if you. Let's look at, Great. not to interrupt you, but let's look at somebody yeah. like Ella. Now, like you said, never heard a bad note. So yeah. why, she's human. The people that are singing now are human. What's the difference between Ella that can that can sing and that won't hit a wrong note, and now the people today, they can't sing and they have to sing through auto-tune? I don't know, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to say I've heard a lot of the younger people, they can't, they can't go from one note to the next. They kind of like slide up to it. Right, and it's I hear a whole lot of sliding nowadays, mm-hmm. which is what I believe they they've kind of learned to get to the note by if they slide once they get to it they they know it that one and they can stop on it like, uh, uh, I never heard Ella slide, never heard well you'd hear Sarah Vaughn slide but she was going there on purpose right, and uh, um, uh. It's just I don't think kids have learned to say do re mi fa so la ti do. Right. <laughs> I just don't think they learned to do that. This I don't know where they're learning when they first start. Mm-hmm. That seems to be some of the uh, some of the questions. How do they learn? How do they? And and I mean I hear in these new the new rappers and whatnot. No, they they don't read music, but they write their own songs. Right. <laughs> I said, wow, I can I can that gamble. So right. anyway, yeah, I'm a songwriter, but I don't know how to write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's amazing to me that you know there's people that'll go to a jam session or something and sit in or or sing one time, and then they're like, "Well, yeah, now I'm a singer." Yeah, and it's like, well, if you didn't, yeah. You got to train just like everybody else. You have to learn your, you know, you have to learn where you yes. came from and where you're going. You know, same yes. things with drumming. Yeah, I I have my own big band out here where I live. That if I'm home and not working, I play over here at the golf course. We we do it for fun, but it's a it's a rehearsal band so that if anybody hears it, they can use it for a wedding band. 
Right. You know, you know, you'd be surprised how many singers want to come up and sing with the band. And I say, well, do you have your arrangements? Right. Well, and they say, oh, I don't need any. I know the song. <laughs> and I, I said, well, you got seventeen guys that don't know what you're going to do. Right. How are you going to sing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, people are really funny about how little they know and how they how little they think there is to it. Right. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Did did you speaking of of people that you played with? Did you play with Ray Charles? I did a world tour with Ray Charles and BB King with the Philip Morris Big Band. Really? Yeah. What was that like? Walk talk about that a little bit. I would love to hear a little bit. Man, about that. that rhythm section was Ray Brown on bass, Kenny Burrell on guitar, Gene Harris on piano, and yours truly. And man, I couldn't hit anything that ever sounded bad. It was, <laughs> you know, the the pockets were so big there, man. It was such a beautiful experience. And then we did big band jazz. Then we went into BB King's blues, and then mm-hmm. we went into Ray Ch- Ray Charles's hits, and with him. Man, and, I mean, we were playing football stadiums. What year was yeah, that? And, uh, what year was that? What year was that? Uh, it had it had to be. Uh, uh, let's see, Sarah died in about eighty nine, and and that would could that could have been in ninety. Yeah, right around in there. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's in the. It, I I think I'm pretty sure it's in my book mm-hmm. uh, on that. Um, but uh, yeah, man. And and the, and and BB recorded one of our shows at the Apollo, and it won a Grammy. Really? Yeah. What's the? I'm gonna. It's called BB BB King live at the Apollo. I'm looking it up right now because I want to make sure I want to check that out. Yeah. And Bray Charles is one of my favorite artists. That's why I had to ask you about it. Yeah, man. And yesterday I was at my post office, and you know they now have the, they got the Ray Charles stamps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just saw them. How how was he as a person? Was he cool? You know, I can't say on that because uh, uh, his guy Joe Joe White, that mm-hmm. manager, the guy that traveled with him, he did all the talking for Ray. Really? Yeah, he did everything. So I I'd only see him when we get on the plane to travel. Mm-hmm. You know, by then he was just saying, hello, how you doing, and this and that. And at the hotel room, the Joe Joe would take him onto his hotel room, and then right. you just wouldn't see him anymore. Yeah. yeah. But I tell you, that Joe, he ran he ran a, a tight ship about as far as anybody being around or being nice or anything like that. It was kind of hard to get close to Ray. Oh, really? And B.B. King, on the other hand, is the nicest man in the world. <laughs> I mean, this guy was so humble. He kept saying, oh, Harold, thank you for being here. You are the best. You're the best. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the other way around, baby. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, he he seems like he's very humble just by his mannerisms and and the way that he is on stage, you know. Yeah. Yeah, B.B. King. I mean, I've been lucky. B.B., Ray Charles, Count Basie. Mm-hmm. I mean that's three that's three gentlemen there. I probably lived my life better than I would have lived it <laughs> if I'd done it on my own. But after hanging around really nice, great guys like them, 
you know, you, you form you form a little little better opinion of life and yourself. Right. You yeah. you played with uh with Jimmy Smith for a little while too, didn't you? Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm a big Jimmy Smith fan too. I love the I'm a big organ oh. trio fan. Oh, okay. There's a guy I wanna say he was underrated, but he won downbeat every year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I mean I mean he would like a lot of people didn't know about him because they well, I, I don't hate to say anything prejudiced, but the black people thought an organ belonged in church. <laughs> right. Well, that you was know, that so was like the that was the big thing that that Jimmy did, right? He he really brought the organ out into yeah. outside of the church, and people weren't too happy about it at first. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to learn a lot of the a lot of the organ history. Um, I'm close with the De Francesco family, so, oh. um, and. I, I just recorded a record with Joey DeFrancesco's brother, um, Johnny, who's a phenomenal guitar player. And uh, but I, so I've learned all this history because Jimmy Smith is from Pennsylvania. A uh, good friend of mine was his was his road tech or was worked with him and Joey um, teching for him and stuff. So so I've been I've been hip to the organ stuff and uh, you know played in played in organ bands and stuff. So uh-huh. I'm really into that. Especially it can just, be very powerful, man. That organ groups. Yeah. So were you playing with them in, in in a trio or were you playing in a bigger band? Trio. 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 Although he he sometimes have a tenor player come. Mm-hmm. There was a Herman Riley that lived in L.A. He used him a lot on tenor. But uh, yeah, but it was normally a trio. Mm-hmm. Phil Phil Wright was on the. Uh, uh, no no Phil. No, the guitar player. Anyhow, I can't think right now. <laughs> So how do you approach something like that, like a trio setting versus the big band setting, or you know, even just a bigger band? What's your how how is your approach different? Well, uh, uh, I've had people try to ask me something like that before, and but you know, at the same time, I was with Basie's big band. A whole lot of percentage of the time, Basie would just be playing one finger piano. <laughs> right. And the rhythm section is just ching, 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 right along behind it, and it just starts swinging. By the time the, the the trumpet players and all them got the blood back in their lips and everything, that's how he he let them, uh, uh, you know, he let them off so they didn't have to play, you know, constantly all night. Right. And uh, I'm saying that uh, it, that that was one thing because I learned technique. Uh, I just I use a smaller drum set. If mm-hmm. I, if it's only going to be a trio, I use a smaller drum set, an 18 inch bass drum. I was going to ask eight, a, a smaller bass drum too. Yeah, yeah. So and so consequently, I can still just hit it as hard as I want, but it just doesn't sound as big. Right. Tune. And then t- if I'm tune playing tight with, or tuned loose, I'm gonna say <clears throat> it's not really tight, mm-hmm. but it's 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 not loose. It, but it leans towards tight. Right. So it has as much sound or boom as possible. Mm-hmm. But then if I was going to do a jam session with a couple of horn players and all that, man, I gotta have at least a twenty inch bass drum. Right. And and then and then and then if I'm gonna be with the big band, I use a twenty two inch bass drum. Mm-hmm. And and the and the nine by thirteen and the sixteen by sixteen floor tom. And uh I I tend to play the same. However, as the drums start to get bigger, that circle to get around the drums is bigger too. Right. right. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, that's about the only thing is, <clears throat> I just uh, 
I use a different size drums to, for the different kinds of music. Right. Just for ton- yeah. different tonal qualities. and Yes. Which makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Now, you, you had mentioned a few minutes ago your your book, um, The Singer's Drummer. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> a baritone player in my big band out here, we, we'd sit around on all the breaks, and and it, it ended up I did, did all the talking. <laughs> right. Because because they were asking me questions about Basie and, and Lockjaw and the different cats that I'd been with. And uh, uh, so finally, one of the, the, the a guy with the baritone player was a, a, a writer. I don't mm-hmm. know and uh, he said, man, well, you ought to do a book. And I said, oh, man. I said, I tried to write some notes down, and then I lost my notes. <laughs> and <laughs> this, So this guy showed up at band rehearsals for two years and would talk with me. He'd buy, buy me a beer afterwards, and I'd just get loose lips, and we'd just keep talking. And because he was not a musician, he knew what questions to ask that people would want to know. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it kept me off the beaten tunnel track uh, or, or anyhow. It kept me out of a rut in right. writing a music, musician's book. So, uh, I mean, the people I've had to read it, man, I mean, uh, they they really enjoyed it. Even I enjoy it because uh, the guy says it so well right. when he's talking. Yeah. So, it, it, so it, go ahead. it's basically a book that chronicles your career? Yes. Yes. And I'm going to, I'm just looking it up right now because on every uh, episode that we do, there's always a, a website that corresponds with it. So on the on the Drummer's Resource website, I'll list all of this information so the listeners out there can go over and, and pick up the book if they want to. That would be super, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can, can you get it up there now? If you look, it's called The Singer's Drummer. Yep, I got it right, they- it's right here on, uh, right here on Amazon. All right. Yeah. Yep. If that's the All best, right. is that the best place for them to buy it through Amazon? I, I'm going to say yes. Okay. I'm going to say yeah. Uh, I mean, I got a couple of hundred books here at the house, but right. we, <laughs> we just use those for friends and neighbors and relatives. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. But but uh, uh, God, what was I going to say? Something about something about the book. Oh, this guy was so good. I mean, when I would tell him something like, uh, yeah, man, so I was with Basie, and when we did such and such in 75, he would correct me. He'd say, Harold, you couldn't have done it in 75. In 75, you were with Nancy Wilson in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, whoa, man, because he was finding this stuff on the Internet, you know, right, right, and whatnot, man. And he was good. By the way, Nancy Wilson, her band, she had Harold Land on tenor and Blue Mitchell on trumpet. And her other singer was Joe Williams. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe you think that wasn't a swinging group. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, what were some some things that you had to overcome when you were when you were coming up? Because I know a lot of a lot of guys out there, you know, especially a lot of people that are that are trying to forge a career in music now, um, are facing different obstacles and stuff. What's an o- some of the obstacles that you faced, and how'd you overcome them? Well, man, and here I was, a young kid in music school. They wouldn't accept the drum set because, uh, and then so I said, why not? Right. And they, and they said, the head of the school said, because there's never been any music written for it. Oh. So I went back to the classroom and, and several.
several months later, I came out with a drum piece. For It was written for the drum set, the tambourine, and the triangle. Really? Yeah. And I, and, and we performed it. it. It's world premiere. It was in Chicago for the American Conservatory. And uh, I named it Siwe's Tweed. Now, Siwe is spelled S-I-W-E. But Tom Siwe was a famous percussionist around the, uh, Chicago and the Bay Area. We had a percussion ensemble back there. And uh, we, we played this piece, man. And from then on, kids could come to the American Conservatory on the drum set. But they had to learn to play that piece. Hmm. And so that was one obstacle. Right. So I, I want to say I honestly legitimized the drum set, at least as far as that school went and us. And uh, that's how I got accepted. Mm -hmm. And then another big hurdle was, uh, okay, I'm doing these summer concerts with the Chicago Symphony. My teachers got us in there. We're playing, playing any and all these pieces. And I, finally, when they were going to have an audition for somebody that died in the symphony or something, uh, I went to the audition, and that's when I found out that minorities could not play in the Chicago Symphony. They would not hire any minority. You know, I was going to ask you about that, too, so I'm glad you're talking about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, when, when, when they said that, for some reason, I laid down the timpani mallets, and I went out in, and into the nightclubs, and I was in the nightclubs the rest of my life. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and Chicago had enough clubs you could be. You could be right. in a nightclub. Right, right, right. Rest, yeah, but uh, that and, really blew me blew What me year away. was that? That was 59. 59. 60. Well, by the time I knew about the, the rule, it could have been 62. But right. by then, I would have been things with Eddie Harris, the first jazz record to ever sell a million copies. Really? Ex Exodus to jazz. Huh. That was the first. And then I was with Paul Winter. That was the first band to ever play in the White House because Kennedy sent us on a 23-country tour, and that was in 61 back in there. Hmm. Yeah. How many times um, have you played at the White House? Well, that was once for Kennedy. And then a lot of people don't know this, but Nancy Reagan's favorite singer was Sarah Vaughn. Now, Reagan was in office for two terms, eight mm -hmm. years. Right. In that eight-year eight, eight year times, we went there every other year. So I was there four times when Reagan was in office. That's awesome. Oh, it really was, man. And that's why... I, I might be a closet Republican, because <laughs> I mean, all I want is for them to like everybody likes Sarah, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I, yeah. So anyway, that was that many times, uh, and then when Natalie Cole, we did shows that uh, uh, Clinton was was always at mm -hmm. that he did, and since I've been with back with Tony, I've got to shake his hand again, Clinton, and uh, shoot some shots with him. Oh, awesome. Yeah, man. I mean, being a musician, to get into the White House one-on-one -on -one with a president of the United States uh, is, uh, I mean, that's as high as you can go, I think. Absolutely. There ain't no, there ain't no keys for those doors, man. No, no. But, but I, I tell the students, if I talk to them, I say, man, the key is to practice in that room alone with no windows. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You come out of there, and, and then you'll be wanted by because they they've always have entertainment you know in the white house yeah and yeah 
So uh, anyway, I, you know what? I'm not exactly sure how many times I've been to the White House, but the guy that wrote the book looked it up and found out. Hmm. So, so I can name five of them right there. Right, right off the top of your head. Yeah, off the top of my head. The fact and that you can't remember how many times you've been to the White House is is amazing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know I know how many way. I know how yeah. many I know how many times I've been to the White House. Zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nick. <laughs> well, if you say it that way, yeah, you're right. See, we as musicians tend to get a little spoiled in our in our life, you know. Right. <laughs> but yeah, but it is. It is a good life. Yeah. So what advice do you have for for people that are out there that are trying to make a career in music and that are coming up through the ranks now? I suggest that they they uh, get a teacher so that they are properly playing the instrument with knowing how to hold it and knowing how to read. They don't have to play all all 100 rudiments. They can get down to two or three things so that when they're warming up, both hands are warming up together equally. Mm-hmm. They don't become a one-handed drummer. Right. I suggest that. Then I suggest that they they try to get some other kids their same age in the school to uh, play, have a band and form a band, mm-hmm. and that that little band, boy, when you're starting out like that, that's when you learn and get the feeling of pushing and pulling, and uh, loud and soft. And I recommend they try to find buddies to play with live, a garage band, like. Mm-hmm. And then, I'm not sure it applies today, but when I came up, I listened to everybody. Right, because because it was only uh, uh, it was probably under a hundred groups. <laughs> right, but uh, but I recommend that they listen to as many people as they can. Don't think that you just listen to one one person that would be stealing, because I think that's what forms your style. Right, is you have a piece of this guy in you and a piece of that guy in you, and if you copy anybody, I mean, like say a kid said, oh well. Uh, I may not be good. All I do is play like Buddy Rich. I said, well, hell, if you're that good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. And right. So, so you can't go wrong if you if you get somebody that you like, and then that'll make it easier when you're practicing too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Playing music, music and songs that you like yourself, mm-hmm. and and that way when you go into practice, a half an hour will seem like you were there ten minutes. Right. And I and I say if you come out of the practice room and that's the way you feel. Hey man, you better go back in for another ten minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I tell them if you're in there for ten minutes and it felt like a half an hour, you probably were hitting your head against the wall. You right. really weren't get, you really weren't getting it right. So you maybe you, you, you should take a break. <laughs> yeah. Now, what's your back. approach on practicing though? Because some people have you know or you know some people had these super regimented practice schedules and some people had different ways to help them because I think practicing is kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing, you know, cause you're work, you may be working on something for an hour and may not be getting anywhere or, or may not be practicing the best way that you could be practicing. Yeah. Well, that's a really, very difficult question. Uh, uh, but I, I recommend no matter what every day they set aside anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes to go into a room and play one page of music, mm-hmm. just reading, and then play one song. Uh, anybody they like, play along with one song and play one page of music so their eyes are reading music and looking at it every day. Right. And I mean, if you do that for 30 minutes max, 
five days a week, six days a week, you're going to come out a player. Yeah. You you really will. It's just the, the the regiment of being able to stick to it or and or do it every day, and try don't you don't have to lock yourself up. Say at six o'clock that's my practice time. I can't go to the movies. I can't go to the game. I can't do. I can't. Don't don't get negative. You know that practice can come in morning, noon, and night. Right. Yeah, and only when you want to, and it should feel good. I love the saying: the only way to get better at reading is by reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that's the problem with drummers. They can already get the sound out of the drum, and uh, they can already play the, the feeling and the time, or not feeling, but the time, and uh, they don't think they need to read right. because their playing gets ahead of their reading. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a terrible pitfall with a lot of drummers. Yeah. I've tried, to cut, cut, I've tried to cut a couple of them off at the past. I mean, really good young kids, you know, these teenagers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and playing with bands. But, man, he couldn't sit down and sight-read a snare drum part. Hmm. So if, if you can let them do that, and it kind of really, it just really opens up one's ears. Right. And, and your mind, you, you really, yeah. Now, do you teach privately, too? You know, I used to. But, man, Tony has me on a retainer 52 weeks a year. We work 12 months a year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's whenever a good, that's I got, a good position to be in. Oh man, it's it's been the first real real musical band of anyone I've ever been in that treats us guys and when we're off, you know, well we're still laying in the in the in the bullpen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, waiting to go back in and uh uh to have us on retainer like that, that's the way it always should have been. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was many times, man. I mean, I was going to Europe with Sarah Vaughn, and, and we had a month tour over there of all the jazz festivals. And something happened at Carnegie Hall one night. George Ween was backstage. Oh, and Sarah found out she was staying at one hotel, and he had put the band around the corner at Motel 6 at, at mostly every place over there. Mm -hmm. And, and Sarah, said, Sarah said, no, I want my band in the same hotel I'm in or I'm not going. Hmm. And she stuck to her guns, and we didn't go to Europe. Wow. Yeah. Now, consequently, as much as I have to say I loved her for it, here I am sitting at home, and I'd already told everybody I'm going to Europe for a month. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so, and, and that, now, that took me three months then to catch back <laughs> up again, to dig up out of the hole. So, yeah, you have pitfalls and fallbacks, you know. Right. <laughs> You're yeah. like, I'm out of here. I don't want to talk to any of you. I'm leaving for a month. <laughs> Yeah, 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 man. Oh, boy. So, yeah, you got to be careful. Absolutely. So where can yeah. listeners go if they want to learn some more information about you? Where's the best place to go? Well, I, I'm going to say uh, uh, any this, this guy did a pretty thorough job in my book. Mm -hmm. He really did because he did it, took it back from with my little high school bands. I had, we had our little garage bands. I, and, and. I'm telling you, in high school, I played in any form of music there was. I played in the the, the marching band, and they they made me uh, go from a snare drummer to the bass drum because I was the only one who could keep the steady beat. Right. And and as a kid, you think bass drum is downgrading, but then I found as an adult that that's really the hard beat of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I could run that band at any tempo I wanted. And but I did that. I played in the orchestra. 
And I learned how to really good read then because there was terminology all in Italian that I, I hadn't quite seen that much of. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I was in the pep band where you got into all the games free, nice. you know. And then I went out and worked at the nightclubs and uh, around the area, around uh, in Indiana, Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati. And, I mean, here I am. I was 16, man. The leader of the band was the barber, the barber in town. And uh, he had so many girlfriends that he couldn't even sing the, the, his theme song. So he, he had me sing uh, the theme song. The theme song was uh, Don't Go Nowhere, Can't Show My Face, Everybody Knows You Left Me, It's the Talk of the Town. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what the hell the song meant. <laughs> But this cat playing piano, he didn't sing it, so he didn't have to. <laughs> None of the girls got jealous. <laughs> yeah, man, so you, you get doing things like this, you know. And then, I mean, with bands like Roosevelt Sykes, man, he had the Honey Dripper. We would go from Chicago, drive over to uh, Indiana up there where they had all the strip clubs and all that in, up in Gary. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we'd go to work in, in, in I mean, that's how he discovered me. He's, after a job in Chicago, I was went out and got in my little green Chevy station wagon. And that's when he made this statement. You mean that's your station wagon? He says, hey, we can use you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd go around and pick up the whole band in Chicago, and we'd drive down to Indiana and play a gig. And by the time we, I drove back home and took everybody home, it was time for me to go back to school the next day. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but as a kid, I was in those strip clubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So it, it's been a, a real trip, you know, the musical rock world. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, Harold, Good thank guys. you for for spending time with us today. I really, I really appreciate it. The the stories were were great. We probably could have gone on for for hours yeah. here. It was a pleasure, Nick, and thank you. And and uh, just keep this music alive out here. Absolutely, we will. Thanks again, yeah. Harold. Okay, man. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye bye. So there you have it, the one and only Harold Jones, who, like I said, is just an amazing, amazing person, player, and uh, just it was such an honor to have him on the show. You can check him out at haroldjonesbigband.com. Also, if you want to go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 27, I'll have all of Harold's stuff on there where you can find the book and access his website, and I'll have some, some clips of his recordings on there as well. Be sure to visit drummersresource.com or facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. And wherever you're listening to this, take a picture, tag us on Instagram. We want to check it out and and see where you find people out there listening to this podcast because I know you're not doing it all in New York where we are. So uh, other than that, we got another show coming up for you on Thursday. And until then, keep drumming. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.